Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Casper, the risk-free online retailer of premium mattresses. Try sleeping on an American-made Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. Right now, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com political. And buy Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and have your postal carrier pick up the packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GABFEST for Halloween, October 31st, 2014. The I'll Disown You If You Marry a Republican Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. On this week's show, apparently there's an election on Tuesday. Can the Democrats avoid a total debacle? John Dickerson will tell us. Then, the last acceptable prejudice in American life, it's partyism. We will explain what that is. And do we need a law against it? And then, Gamergate, the Byzantine, poisonous, crazy politics of video games. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, the town that wants to ban tobacco, will they be able to do that? Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News are both in New York, Slate's New York City. They are plotting against me there. What have you come up with? Conspiracy. Let it begin. We're going to shave off your beard remotely. (laughs) That would be an interesting thing. Maybe we could get a sponsor to do that. Maybe Harry's, Harry's could do that. Before we get started, there are just a couple of quick announcements. 78 about, announcements. No, they're just a couple. Look, you don't ever have to do these announcements, John. Uh, so no, just, no, uh, not, just keep your mouth shut. looking forward with a bated breath. I have He's to deal with it. Of... I'm the person dealing with all this. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not blaming you. I'm fellow feeling. I'm feeling your pain. Okay. There are two, this is really two announcements. Listen, because the second one is kind of cool. First announcement, we have a live show in Chicago on November 12th. That's a Wednesday. It is at slate.com slash chai gabfest. Is that the correct pronunciation? Did I get it right? Gabfest for Chicago. But it's spelled chai gabfest. It's chai gabfest. C-H-I gabfest. It's at the Park West at 730. Uh, Special guest Amy Dickinson of Ask Amy. We're doing our conundrums episode. Someone just emailed me just even as we started the show, a conundrum, which was is it the obligation of those of us who want to save the planet to stop having children? Is our having children ruining the planet? Are we should we stop having them and save the planet? Um, What's but the we will... correspondent's name Malthus. <laughs> Paul Ehrlich. 
Bill McKibben. Sorry. It was not. It is none of those people. Send us your conundrum, facebook.com slash GabFest. Tweet them to us at at SlateGabFest or email them to us at GabFest at Slate.com. Now, there's a second announcement. Pay close attention, Chicagoans. We are doing, because of the way that this week is falling, the week we're going to be in Chicago falls, we have a second show that we have to do that week. So we're doing our conundrum show on Wednesday night. And then on Thursday morning at our hotel, we're going to do our regular GabFest for that week. We need to tape it. We're all going to be together. And we have a large room. And we thought, like, let's get – we can only fit kind of a handful of people, eight people in this room with us. But we'd love to have eight fans of the GabFest come. And so we're going to give away two pairs of tickets to Slate Plus members who would like to go. You will get first crack at those tickets. I think we'll just uh, lottery it, whatever Slate Plus members who want to come to our show at our hotel on Thursday morning, November 13th. We will give those tickets to you. And then there are going to be two more pairs of tickets that we will – auction off to people who will make the largest charitable donations to two Chicago charities. You can choose one of the two. We have to get the names. We're getting, we're picking two great Chicago charities right now. Whoever is willing to make the largest donations to those charities can have those other tickets. We'll do two pairs of those. So you can email us the contribution you're willing to make to those charities. We will get the names of those charities up on the Facebook page, but email us at gabfest at slate.com if you would like to come to that November 13th in the morning in our hotel room very intimate, private GabFest taping. You guys looking forward to that? I am. I'm just wondering how intimate it's going to be in our hotel room. It's going to be very intimate. It's not going to be in your room. Actually, John, we're all going to crawl <laughs> into your bed. It'll be your worst nightmare. <laughs> it's not going to be in. It's, gonna, it's not even going to be in a room. I think it's. A, I think I heard it was a small conference room. But there, it'll it'll be awesome. It's going to be. I'm looking forward to it. We promise to keep our distance. The midterm election of 2014, not the most exciting election in memory. In 1998, the president was being impeached. In 2002, the nation was about to go to war in Iraq. In 2006, the nation had gone to war in Iraq and everyone was mad at the president. And 2010, every conservative in the country was mobilized against Obamacare. This time around, it's kind of crickets. There are going to be major gains for the GOP in the Senate and the House, or and some gains in the House. They will also be major gains for the GOP in state legislatures, apparently. But there is not a grand sense that even if the Republicans get a big victory in the midterms, as people generally expect they will, that a lot will change. John, is that a fair characterization of sort of what the sense of what will happen afterwards is? Or if I, if I as usual, grotesquely twisted things? No, no, I think, uh, well, I would do the only, the only small, tiny modification I would make to an otherwise excellent introduction is that we don't, we don't know what conclusions we'll draw after it, but we know the state of play going into it, which is just exactly as, as you just, just described it, which is that there are no great issues in conversation in, in, in these races that I've been through. And we will learn after $4 billion has been spent that Republicans don't like Barack Obama, because that is the basically the message from Republican campaigns. Now, Republican candidates bring up all kinds of other things. They want to secure the border. They want to reduce spending. They want to get rid of regulations. But they mention that it's sort of like saying, you know, sort of having a leaflet that says those things and then having Moby Dick, which is all full of Obama is bad. So in speeches and in, in debates and in advertisements, it's all about the relationship between the Democratic incumbent or person trying to win the seat and, and the president. There's not a great debate going on. Um, and so since there isn't one, they've been kind of stuck. There is not a particular piece of drama in part because there's no great issue 
Now, there's been a little bit of late breaking drama in Kansas, a little in South Dakota, and maybe now in Georgia, as Democrats look like they might have a shot to take that seat away from the Republicans, which seemed like it wasn't going to even be a part of this story when the elections were over, that it would really be all about how many seats could Republicans take from Democrats. But that's a pretty small dose of drama compared to what have been real elections during those other wave years that you mentioned. Emily, how could there be a GOP sweep, as there may well be on Tuesday, without there being major policy changes that ensue after that? Well, I feel like whatever the answer is to that question, the idea that this election is low stakes seems wrong to me. I understand that there's no big galvanizing fight, but that doesn't mean that it just doesn't matter who our represented officials are. And I suppose the reason we don't think there'll be a major policy shift is we're just expecting a stalemate where whatever the Republicans propose, if and when they take the Senate and hang on to the House, won't become law because Obama won't pass anything. Or if it does become law, it'll be because they found some acceptable compromise like immigration reform that provides for long-term residency, even if it's not a path to citizenship. I don't understand how we settle the kind of deep disagreements about who pays for what in this country and how we deal with rising inequality. That seems to me like it's very much on the table in this election. And the only way it doesn't matter is if in two years it flips back the other way. So I think there's a difference between what matters, in fact, and what is being debated in the actual campaigns. There are millions of things that actually matter, huge debates that we should be having, crucial questions. And the the question of who has power of the Senate is very important. Even if they get no pieces of legislation passed, there are lots of things that the Senate can do and or lots choose of, to obstruct, right? Right. Or, I mean, or the, even the way we talk about politics in a situation in which Republicans control all of Congress will ch- significantly change the conversation than the way in which we've talked about it over the last several years where it's been a divided house. So there are certainly ramifications. But what I was talking about is the is the state of play going into the election. Yeah. And what people are talking about, not yeah. what's going to happen. And I think what we'll know after the election is, you know, what level of of disappointment with the president? What level of kind of wave are we going to have? If Republicans take control of the Senate simply by winning in the six states that Mitt Romney carried by double digits, then that's hardly a foundation from which Republicans can say, see, our ideas are winning the day. Because basically they will have been ratified only by their home team in those states in which, again, six states in which Obama lost by double digits. Now, if Republicans win in North Carolina, Iowa, Colorado, New Hampshire, then they have a reasonable claim to say, look, these are four states that are battleground states in the national election. And our message won in those places. And therefore, we speak for something beyond just the most hardcore members of our club. Now, you may be able to poke holes in that argument, but it's a more it's an easier one to sustain than if this election is a much more limited kind of Republican tide. And we just won't know all that till the end. And then there's also the picture of the governors, because you've got a bunch of governors who are running as proud conservatives who've who've actually put stuff in place. I mean, the difference, of course, between governors and senators is governors have to do stuff. And so you have real test cases in Wisconsin and in Kansas and in Florida where Republican governors are are they going to get reelected or get walloped for making choices, for deciding to take the Medicaid money as a part of the Affordable Care Act, from cutting taxes and and also uh, cutting spending to 
programs that certain kinds of voters like, like education. And that's a way in which we might, when all of it's been said and done and we tally the math, we might say, well, the, it looks like in these places, uh, Republican ideas, you know, are succeeding or are at least getting people reelected. And in these places, they're not or whatever. But we're going to kind of we'll need to have an outcome to kind of draw some of those conclusions. And unions and labor, that'll matter, too, right, in terms of whether Scott Walker gets reelected in Wisconsin, we'll get some kind of referendum on the really dramatic changes he made there. That's right. And and something that somebody who's a strategist at one of the big unions was making the case to me last week was that if Democrats lose in states, let's look at Colorado, for example, no state probably, you could argue, and I would argue, used the pitch to women, both married and single, on reproductive rights more constantly, consistently, and in just sheer tonnage than in Colorado. And you're talking now about the Democrats pushing back against the personhood amendment? and So the playbook, as we've talked about before in Colorado, is to run up the score with women to help with the Democrats' problem with men. And in Colorado, they had a special case, which is they had, Cory Gardner had supported a personhood amendment when he was in the legislature, and then he also supports one at the federal level. And so Democrats just as Michael Bennett ran on abortion in uh, 2010, they have used these issues against Gardner. The problem is, in July, Udall was up nine points with women. Now, in October, he's only up by six. Bennett won his race by being up 18. Uh, Udall won his last race by being up 15. So it looks like this is not breaking through. And the argument this union strategist was making is too much narrow casting to women, that the Democrats missed an opportunity to talk about economic issues to get to that 50,000 income level family that really cares a lot about economic issues and that Democrats didn't put the emphasis on those issues that they put on, say, women's reproductive rights and that that's been a flaw. So that's a who knows if you can sustain that argument all the way through, but it's the kind of discussion we'll get we'll have after the election. You know, if Udall wins and Braley wins in Iowa using a version of the same argument, then people will be like, well, I guess that strategy did work. Do you think there'll even be the pretense, supposing the Republicans do get a a sizable victory and take the Senate, will there even be that pretense that both parties generally make after an election that now we're going to work together for the good of the American people? Or is is that not even going to happen? Is the president not even going to bother? Is Congress not even going to bother? Well, I think you'll see an interesting split there because you could see the president two years left in his presidency, which are going to be kind of dull and boring. You could imagine a situation in which the president said on things like trade promotion authority or maybe even even immigration or even some budget stuff could say, all right, let's see if we can put something together so that I can have some accomplishments in my final two years. And also, to the extent that he makes deals over here, he perhaps protects the Affordable Care Act over there. And that will be his big legacy for the future. So you can imagine a way in which the president could find a legacy reason to work with Republicans. If I'm Harry Reid, there's absolutely no reason to work with the Republicans because in 2016, the map is horrible for Republicans in the way it's bad this time for Democrats. And Democrats are perfectly willing to believe that if nothing happens over the next two years, that it's the fault of those wild-eyed Tea Party Republicans. And so you could imagine a situation in which the president's interests diverge from Democrats. But boy, they're awfully tired over at the White House. I don't know how much sort of energy they have for kind of running up the bipartisanship hill one more time. Emily, don't you think there's a, if you think back to the last two years of the Bush administration, there was Democratic majority in the House and Senate. And then you had two years of Obama being a pretty effective president. There's a lot of legislation. Then the last two years of Obama's first term, nothing much happened. It looks like nothing will happen in Obama's second term at all. 
if the Republicans hold the House in 2016, but Hillary wins the presidency, which is almost probably, I would say, the most likely scenario at this moment, you could imagine that there will be four more years of nothing happening. So we could have a period of, of 12 years where nothing happened except for one brief two-year window. We're almost – we're literally the government as a legislating actor stopped working. Isn't that scary? Well, if you want the government to solve big problems like immigration and um, climate change, then yes, it is alarming. I mean, those seem like two of the main challenges looming above us that you could imagine just completely ineffective gridlock. And then the other thing is that, of course, punctuating the nothing are these moments of dire emergency where the government is about to shut down or about to, uh, you know, default on our debt by not raising the debt ceiling. So it's not like autopilot is peaceful and kind of generic. Autopilot (laughs) includes like the sense of the car heading off the cliff at, at regular intervals. One thing that's going to be really interesting will be to watch the jockeying in conversation inside conservative slash Republican circles, because, again, it depends on the outcome. If they sweep the field, then you'll have lots of people saying, hey, this was the result of getting good kind of moderate candidates, keeping the Tea Party at bay or co-opting them for a variety of strategies in different states, but sort of handling them. Now, if Republicans only win in five states, don't take back the Senate, they win in five red states and don't take back the Senate, there will be an even louder fight over, you know, we should have run kind of thorough, true blue conservatives. Uh, But even almost regardless of the outcome, there's going to be a big conversation about kind of how to lead. And that should be fascinating to watch if Republicans take control of the Senate, because um, you'll have one group, the group running the Senate in the House saying, you know, let's do this orderly preg- sort of approach. And then you'll have the other people saying, hey, you got control of the Senate because a bunch of Republicans in Republican states brought you here. And so you got to speak to them. And that's there's a tension in that. All right. Let's close. I'm Dickerson, you'll probably be unwilling to do this. How many Senate seats will the Republicans hold in the next Congress. Take. No, how many will they have? End up with. How many oh, will they have? what will their final number be? Uh, all right, do we all have our number? Who wants to go first? I'll go first. I'm at, you go first. 53. Wow, that's, I was going to say 51. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I got 51-ish, 52, maybe. I don't know, though. I really don't know. It's, it's even crazier than it was 10 years ago to make predictions about what's going to happen because politics and, the, and political strategy has changed in the last eight years more than it did from 1936 to 19 or to 2006. I mean, the changes in the way these races are run, the kind of wonkiness of polling in some of these states, it just makes me nervous about saying anything. The GabFest is sponsored this week by Stamps.com. It's quick, convenient, and most importantly, easy to use. It will make your mailing and shipping a breeze. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage using your computer and printer. There is nothing to learn. Stamps.com will give you a digital scale, which automatically calculates exact postage for any letter and any package. It will also help you choose the best class of mail to get your mail there on time for the least amount of money. Then you just drop your mail into any mailbox or hand it over to your postal carrier, and you're done. Mailing and shipping has never been easier, and you'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, our promo code GABFEST gets you a special offer, $110 no-risk trial, where you can get up to $55 in free postage and that free digital scale. 
For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GabFest. That's stamps.com. Enter GabFest. Cass Sunstein and David Brooks have weighed in recently about a demoralizing new phenomenon in American life, which they call partyism. Racial prejudice, sexism, even homophobia are clearly on the wane, but our willingness to judge others for their political beliefs is rising, with half of Republicans and a third of Democrats saying they would be disappointed if a loved one married someone of the other political persuasion. That is up from basically no one who used to believe that a generation ago. We judge people with opposing political beliefs more harshly. We we find reasons not to hire them when we look at their resumes. It is the last acceptable prejudice in American life. So, Emily, is partyism a real thing, or is this just the kind of thing that David Brooks comes up with because it's very it appeals to his David Brooksianism? I think it's real. I thought the research supporting the David Brooks Cass Sunstein thesis was pretty compelling. That if you change, if you leave resumes qualitatively the same, but you change people's party signals, then like-minded affiliates of those parties are more likely to hire people. And also the numbers of, you know, are you, how would you feel if your kid was going to marry someone of the opposite party have gone, they were tiny, they were like four or five percent for both Democrats and Republicans in the 1960s. And now they're up in the 30s for Republicans and the 20s for Democrats. The 40s that, for Republicans and the 30s 40s. For, for Democrats. Yeah. Okay. I didn't even say it um, dramatically enough. I mean, that those are big shifts. And I think they reflect, and Brooks and Sunstein were arguing this, the fact that people don't live in politically diverse communities as much as they used to. And I feel like this is true about me, about lots of the people I know. And when you don't know people as much personally, then it's easy to demonize them and think that they are some alien creature who you wouldn't want to see at your kid's wedding. When in fact, when then when you stop to think about it and unpack it, that is crazy. I mean, it's one thing to say, like, I might not like this person and I might think their ba- values are bad. But the notion that that tracks directly onto party affiliation is just wrong and kind of nutty. It is, although <laughs> it's so true. I mean, you shouldn't have to live next to somebody to be reminded that other people are human beings and they can see things differently, but largely people care about their neighbors and their families and want the same things out of life and care about meaning and love and and that there's a much bigger connection between humans, not all humans, of course, but humans then, like, just knowing whether there's an R or D before their before their name. And yet, I mean, we see this in political debates all the time where you should be able to have a debate and not require that the person be your neighbor to give them the benefit of the doubt. And uh, Emily, I think you're, what you've described is a perfectly is perfectly correct. I'm just speaking yeah, like, yeah, in absolutely. general. You're speaking uh, prescriptively, uh, yeah. normatively. How it's just nuts. And, and of course, the, the way in which the debates are held in public, either on cable or Twitter, makes it worse um, because it's all jammed. And in both the televised medium and also online, nobody says... Here's a story that's really complex and both sides have a contribution to make and it's really kind of complicated. It's mostly like here's one side being totally venal and horrible and then here's the other side being totally venal and horrible. I also want to emphasize that I don't think it's simply that people don't live together, although that's I think the original problem. It is that all the condensing institutions of American life no longer have that 
mixing function they used to have. So the military has, because when you have an all-volunteer military, that forms a self-segregation. The military, which used to be compulsory service for much of American history, or much of the 20th century, that is no longer true. So the military is essentially all conservative institution. Religious institutions have highly segregated themselves. Schools, which are probably the closest thing we have to an integrating institution in terms of politics, because they will draw from different parts of communities. But even there, because of the residential sorting, they're less and less like they were. And also certain segments of American society have opted out of public schools in a way that they didn't a generation ago. So that you have you know, Christian subcultures or private school subcultures which don't use the public schools in the same way. And you know, sports, I think, is maybe the one of the That's only the only, only institution where this is not. But even even sports, there's high political affiliation with certain sports. So auto racing, the hunting sports, the those are very tend to be very conservative. You know, soccer is clearly a sport which is tilts very liberal. And, you know, things like football are somewhere in between. But those being bring people together around sports, but it's hard to see that that carrying forward into other aspects of people's lives. I think you're shortchanging sports slightly though. I mean maybe this is just getting too personal, but I feel like when I think about the time I spend with people whose politics are probably really different from mine, it is all sports related. And part of why I'm not even really sure is that I'm having interactions with them in which you don't have to talk about how you feel about a a political issue of the day. You're just getting to know them. And so it allows for the kinds of interactions among families, you know, when I think of my kids' teams that just sort of transcend politics. And that's a big relief. Can you guys think of any occasion on which you practiced partyism or partyism was practiced against you? Um, well, no, John Dickerson to, doesn't do this. No, well, the no, last, it's, the last when you when you feel it being practiced on you, it's hard when you're a member of the media. I mean, it's practiced on you all the time as a member of the media because people there are many people who are conservative who are suspicious of the media because they think that the media is full of liberals. So which it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. They have reason right, to right, 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 right. I guess my point is that they it's think it is, and then they draw the conclusion that you must be. And there's also, it's a difference, too, because if you are not a conservative, it does not necessarily mean you are a liberal. But there are many, many conservatives who I've talked to who think of anyone who is not a quite a conservative person as being way the hell over into hippie land. And I I wonder, is that true also on the left, where they think there is no such thing, in part because they're they're dwindling in number, but there's no such thing as the Rockefeller Republican, that you're if you're a Republican, you're a Tea Party person. I know there are people like who think that there are huge groups of people who think that on the left. But I feel like maybe I come across it more because I spend more time with conservatives. One of the interesting studies, I think, as Recline wrote about this, is that in fact, the people who have political interests at all do tend to be extreme. So insofar as you are someone who's interested in politics, it is actually very likely that you are more conservative or more liberal. So Which that, seems not skewing a f- for the country and problematic. And yet, when you think about it, it's perfectly logical. Because if you're going to invest in politics, right. it's because you have convictions and you right. care about it. Of course, you have a position that you've taken and feel strongly about. And you're not really up for grabs much of the time. I mean, one of the weird things, which is that much pointed out, is that party and ideology didn't used to be associated, that your political beliefs, your your kind of your intrinsic conservativeness or liberalness and what party you belong to, those were not congruent during much of the 20th century in the way they have become. 
So you had very liberal Republicans and very conservative Democrats. And that, that allowed party to, to not be a marker for, not be a way to discriminate or a way to, to distinguish people. You, you'd have to find a different way to distinguish people. And the way that we have, we have also sorted and, and calcified and locked in that conservative and Republican are synonymous, liberal and Democrat are synonymous or connected is bad. Agreed. <laughs> Do you think this is a reversible phenomenon or is it, are we doomed to it? wondering that is whether you need some catastrophic event to reverse to shake everyone up and remind us of our common human spirit yeah like i mean like the great depression or you know the war i mean not that i'm wishing war upon us but it does feel like short of that we have more and more geographical institutional schism and less and less sense of coming together Playing off of your point about, you know, the people who are engaged are the people who are the most ideological. There's this huge chunk, chunk, big chunk of the country who doesn't give a damn about politics. And they are a big group of people who are kind of bouncing around together and mingling together. And, and not that, listening to our show. Right. God bless them. Right. I know. Well, <laughs> either that or their lives, uh, they finally know the one piece uh, that's been missing from their uh, uh, eternal journey. Um that's a huge group of people, and they're all doing just fine in terms of this. Um, they've got they've got all kinds of other prejudices, but normal prejudices and not the political one. I think that actually might be my personal ism that I struggle with. I'm in, super interested in, but a little bit baffled by people who are truly, truly oblivious to politics, like people who n- don't watch TV, are not paying attention at all to current events. And yet I also see that that can be a very freeing, peaceful way to live. Well, I think there are plenty of people who pay attention to current events, like some events and not wars. Politics. Yeah. And, and, you know, the oil spill down the road or the, the state murder, of the schools or yeah. the murder. But, but when they look at politics and you like take a list of the 10 things you should care about where you're caring about it, it might lead to some either sense of engagement with the world around you or give you strength through your day or, or make you, you feel like it changes your life. Make you feel like it changes your life. You'd put like politics at 10 because it's full of people who, you know, are just behaving badly. Unless you know who's such a person? You know who's such a person? Such a who? person as me. I have lost. It's weird. <laughs> I've lost that caring about politics. I'm very interested. I, I liked your characterization, John. I'm very interested in the events and the things that happen. But politics, qua politics, man. But I never, if I never read another story about it, I wouldn't. I w- it would be too. Soon. You know, there- a sense of urgency about what's at stake some of the time, even if the game of politics and the ball bouncing doesn't interest you. Maybe. Well, that's because the game, and this is a result of two things: one, the atomization of the media, in which we have like ten seconds, and it's all about the fight. There's a way in which policy and all right, politics wrap up. Become- ten seconds. <laughs> you raised an interesting question, but John's not allowed to talk about it. Uh, where, where you know, um, the the disconnect between politics and policy is wider than ever. That's for media reasons, and then also for structural, I mean, behavioral reasons, which is to say that the polit- they're not doing anything, you know. But when you actually get a piece of legislation that might change people's lives, then at least you can... F- you can trick yourself into thinking, well, all of this game playing is stupid and immature, but at the end of the day, it's going to affect people's lives. So let's try and get as best an understanding of it as we can so that we can perhaps shape the outcome or at least understand the outcome and not think it's just being plopped on our head. I want to end the segment with a story idea for you, John Dickerson. It was an idea I came up with yesterday and tried to get my dear wife to do, and she was uninterested. I hope she doesn't hasn't become interested in the 24 hours since. But 
I think it's a perfect Dickerson story, and it's exactly out of this in this vein, which is there is surely some place left in America where there is actual political heterodoxy, where Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives live together cheek by jowl. Yeah. They share a community. They share schools. They are, you know, some are, they go to the same churches. They're involved in the same workplaces. Mm-hmm. It's like the last leper colony. Yeah, It would yeah. be no, amazing a... to find that place and just like recount it. Like what, this is what it used to be like. Right. Here's what, a... here's what life was. Yeah, right. It's such a great point because in states like Wisconsin, which is considered a purple state, you have deep ruby red sections and then deep blue sections. So it's purple if you mix it all together for the state, but there aren't a lot of like purple neighborhoods. And what creates the conditions of those purple neighborhoods and how do they work? That's a great idea. I shall go uh, searching and looking to find that and uh, tell Hannah she can do something else. (laughs) All right, good. We have a new sponsor this week. Casper, if you've been listening to Slate Podcast, you have heard from Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses selling for a fraction of the price. The mattress industry, as anyone who has had the misfortune of having to deal with the mattress industry, has forced consumers into paying for mattresses with notoriously high markups. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the costs of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing those savings on to you. So Casper has incredibly well-engineered mattresses at shockingly fair prices. They have two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, my two kinds of foam, and they give you better nights of sleep and better days afterwards. Like I slept not at all last night, maybe because I was on a bad mattress. There is also a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days, and there's free delivery and painless returns. The mattresses are made in America, which is nice. And they're much, much cheaper than what you would find in the store. So $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Compare that to industry averages. That's a huge, huge good deal. So you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase if you visit www.casper.com. That's C-A-S-P-E-R.com slash political. So use our promo code political. www.casper.com slash political. Gamergate is ripping through the video game world. An astonishingly impenetrable scandal to those of us outside this universe. It nonetheless has resonance with the major cultural and social shifts in American society as a whole. I'm afraid to even describe it. I find this scandal so confusing. I will now just say some words. Misogyny, (laughs) journalistic ethics, gamers, death threats, and hand the mic over to a guest who knows way more about this than we do. Chris Sontrop is the video critic for the New York Times, which on most days I imagine is an awesome job, but not today because his beloved Kansas City Royals lost the World Series last night. But... So it goes. Chris used to cover politics for Slate. Then he decided to trade it in. He wanted something with less darkness, violence, and cruelty. So he's covering video games. Welcome to the GabFest, Chris Allentrop. Thanks for having me for that needlessly cruel introduction. Well, you had a, you had a few bright weeks there, I'm sure. <laughs> it was joyful for a little bit. So, Chris, I have read a lot about Gamergate. I've read your pieces. I've read pieces in Slate. I have read the Wikipedia entry on Gamergate, which is <laughs> quite literally probably as long as the Wikipedia entry on World War I. And I still don't understand it. So can you try to just briefly explain it in words of one syllable to, to us? Yes, I'll give this a shot. Though I suspect there's an inverse correlation between 
the importance of an event and the length of its Wikipedia entry. So Gamergate is both an orchestrated harassment campaign against women who make and write about video games by a group of men's rights activists and online trolls who may or may not be video game players, and an expression of anger among video game play- a group of video game players who either are angry about what they perceive as the cramming of liberal politics and feminism into their video games or, or the writing and culture that surrounds video games, or possibly the anger, a, a related anger to perceived collusion among enthusiast journalists and video game developers. Those latter two issues, uh, however valid or invalid as they may be, are kind of hard to take seriously when you attach them to the orchestrated harassment campaign that sort of consumed everyone who thinks and writes and plays video games seriously for the past couple of months. One of the main figures in this is um, a woman named Anita Sarkeesian, who's been a prominent feminist critic of gaming and gotten a lot of recognition for that. She canceled a speech at Utah State because she was getting uh, serious death threats or death threats that she took seriously. And there are a few other women who have actually left their homes because they feel like they're really in danger from the online threats they're getting. Why is the Sarkeesian approach to gaming and her kind of feminist critique so threatening to what seems like a fair number of people. I mean, I I'm, I know that the super virulent streak is not the only thing going on in Gamergate, but it is there. And as someone who's not a gamer, I kind of don't get it. I mean, there are big blockbuster movies, and then there are little independent films. And yet in gaming, it seems like the community of gamers doesn't want to have that kind of diversity of offering. Correct. I mean, so Anita Sarkeesian, who is a, she's a prominent critic of video games. But when I say that, I, she, what that means is that she's someone who plays video games, likes them, and applies a critical feminist perspective to them. She's not comparable to someone like Jack Thompson, the Florida lawyer who wanted to ban video games in the in the 90s. Right. She's speaking from within. At least I think that's how she perceives herself, right? Not as like an anti-video game person. Correct. And so why is what she does so infuriating to some players is a good question. I mean, she's had an enormous influence within the industry over the past couple of years. She was given an Ambassador's Award by the Game Developers' Choice Awards earlier this year, which is uh, sort of the Oscars of the industry. I'm sure there are people inside the industry who don't like her, but she's not a villainous figure among game developers by and large. The best explanation I've seen for explaining the disparate threads of we don't want women in our video games, we don't like artistic, small, non-gamey games, we don't like mobile games, and we don't like people who play Candy Crush Saga either, all of which, all of which are sort of seem like they would have nothing to do with each other, is a Middlebury professor whose name now escapes me, but wrote a piece online saying that, you know, yes, this is about hatred of women, but it's also about the blindness gamers have to their taste privilege, that, which is an expression I don't particularly like. But it does make sense that if you were someone who was playing games and liking them, 
then you've discovered over the last couple of years that people don't, some people don't like them, you would lash out, I guess. But, but I'm not, not, not really. I mean, it yeah, seems no, like I'm not, there must I'm be not some... explaining his argument very well. Well, I feel like there must be some deeper cultural identification here among the people who are really upset. Some sense that their whole identity is at stake. This was their world, and these annoying women and liberal critics are crashing it. And it's the threat that I can't quite perceive, well, but obviously they well, feel super embattled. I don't know whether—well, <clears throat> I wonder, Chris, the experience of playing a video game is also different than, say, a movie— uh, and I wonder if that's something uh, that's at play here. I mean, the embattled feeling is not that they're going to take your video games away. It's It feels like, to me, that it's... And some of the reactions have been as violent as some of what we see from other, you know, super-invested cultures like the gun rights culture, where the nannyism, the looking over my shoulder, the pestering me while I'm doing something that I just want to enjoy and be over on my side doing rankles, even if you're not worried that it's going to change the underlying game. That's right. I, mean, I think you're both right. I mean, there definitely is a frequent complaint among Gamer Gators about a series of columns that were written in August, uh, the first by a woman named Lee Alexander for Gama Sutra, which is a website for developers, saying gamers are over. And what they meant by that was precisely what Anita Sarkeesian wrote in the New York Times this week, that video games are for everyone now, and this narrow subculture no longer can stake a claim on the entire medium. Um, so there definitely is a virulent anger at those columns and also a willful misreading of them. Although Lee's was, I mean, Lee's very provocative and hers was intentionally insulting. But it still doesn't, I don't think, you know, justify an advertiser boycott campaign, uh, which they've organized in, around these issues. Um, and it doesn't justify ads from, from Gamma Sutra under that pressure. But John's right, too, that what you're seeing is a adopting of the this sort of umbrage culture, right? This outrage, the, the looking to get outraged and offended, and then to say that you've been victimized, and then to politically organize around it is pretty remarkable. I don't know. So should we be thinking of this as like a Hannah Rosen-style end of men moment where this is a group of, you know, prob, I don't know, young, maybe largely white men who should feel like they have a lot of power, see the um, advertisers they got on their side, and yet somehow feel like their whole earth is being shattered um, by the entry of some different kinds of games? Actually, before you answer that, Chris, just or in answering that. <laughs> I, one thing I don't understand is in what ways are these games allegedly being undermined? Is Call of Duty now it's like Call of Duty nursing or something? <laughs> yeah, you have to breastfeed while you play Call of Duty. That's what your character does now. You know, so this is a common retort to the Gamergate complaint, saying that you know nothing is stopping Call of Duty. The large video studios that make video games who are in pursuit of maximal profits are not going to stop making Call of Duty. And there's a sort of Wolf of Wall Street type debate around Grand Theft Auto V about whether or not it's an exceptional game, you know, even though it's drenched in sexism and, and mistreatment of women. But you know, they've sold 34 million copies. No one's going to take your Grand Theft Auto away from you, regardless of what you think of that game. It's not clear why this is so angering to them unless you get at John's issue in which they yeah. feel that their tribal identity is being challenged in some way. 
Right. And just, you know, screw you for coming in, like putting your judgments on me. And it's that's why I think the personal space of this may be interesting and may have a it's more tribal than the way people think about movies or or uh, or maybe. Yeah. Or, well, some kinds of music you could, you know, where there's a pack mentality following the the music. But you don't expect if you're a music lover that it's only going to be punk or heavy metal or rock that gets produced, right? You you take as a given that that exists within a world of other kinds of music, whereas with video games, there has been only one kind of game, I guess, or well, mostly. Well, a little bit. But, I mean, sort music of? you do, you if you like a certain kind of music, you might very well be angered at other kinds of music, right, and think that they are bad and don't deserve to exist. That's quite common, right? That doesn't lead you to issue death threats, but I would not say that, you know, people who like punk or people who liked, you know, 80s college rock have a sort of, had a sort of blasé attitude toward disco. In fact, this is what Arthur Chu wrote in The Daily Beast, that the hatred of disco is, is pretty analogous to the hatred that some gamer gators have toward what are they perceived as more feminine video games, whether that's... Fair. I think the online component of this, though, matters a great deal, that this expression of rage is more twisted and virulent because it's happening online and is therefore essentially unaccountable. And either these threats are really scary or the people who are making them don't really mean it and are just like some of them just letting off a lot of steam in that way that people do anonymously online. And then, of course, you have the sort of doxing going on, since that's like the weapon of choice online um, for making other people feel exposed. And all of it takes place in this virtual reality. And I think what's really confusing for some of the women who feel attacked is whether it does translate into real life or not. Yes, I think all of these things are true, right? Like, it's true that there are seemingly grown men issuing, you know, threats that are either serious or intended to feel serious and intended to terrorize you out of the conversation. It's also true that Zoe Quinn, who is one of the developers who's experienced a lot of harassment, played a prank phone call that she recorded on YouTube, and I listened to it, and I would be shocked if the person who made this phone call was, was in high school. Like this, it was, uh, I would guess this person was 12 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, on the Internet, no one knows if you're 12 or 30. Um, and I'm sure that when I was, I know for a fact that when I was a 12-year-old, I engaged in light vandalism and did other things that I, I regret. But the Internet does enable everyone to egg the same house in a way that is, Right, you couldn't have gotten Zoe Quinn's phone number when you were 12, whoever she was in your life. (laughs) Now it's online. I was busy calling Moe's Bar, like Bart Simpson or something, right? (laughs) A different phenomenon. Does the gaming press need to clean up its act, Chris, before David ends the segment? I think video game journalism, like all journalism, can always get better. There's always things to improve. At the same time... In some ways, it's a revolution of rising expectations. Video games journalism right now is better than it's ever been. There's more diverse, smarter coverage, deeper coverage uh, at websites and other places. I do think that if newspapering had not been in rapid decline over the past five years, you might have seen a little bit better coverage from the print establishment at large than you than you have seen. It's covered in a sort of quick way, and I think if you had a more a, a stronger, bolder, more confident newspapering culture that was ex- expanding its horizons rather than narrowing them, 
that might have prevented a little of this at least. Not, I don't know prevented it, but at least might have made it made this culture not seem quite so invisible and therefore not feel like the private tribal preserve of the people who play them. Chris Sontrop, video game critic for the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Come back Thank you. Thank anytime. Thank you for having me. So let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you are done with your video gaming for the day, it's time to relax. You finished up Call of Duty. What is it that you're going to be chattering about? So I'm probably the last person in America to have discovered this since I am never a great cultural tastemaker. But I was watching a video last night by a producer and writer named Issa Rae, who has a series online called Awkward Black Girl. And it was really funny. And then I watched, um, so I just recommend that. I just thought it was good. But then I was um, listening to an interview with her and also one with the director of the movie Dear White People. His name is Lost Me in the Ether. But they both had this point, which was that there were, in their view, much more diverse, interesting, multi-representational black characters in movies and TV in the 90s. They were sort of harking back to this great 90s heyday of, like, Different World, that Lisa Bonet show and the Cosby show and a bunch of movies and as Spike Lee. And I was like, that's so weird. Why would the 90s have been the heyday of lots of different kinds of black characters? And then we somehow had this big backsliding. So I just have this cultural question today that I pose to our listeners who are to the wiser cultural critics out there than me. Like, why was the 90s a great moment? I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. Well, I think they, they must have been that was their coming of age period. And they probably saw all of them and. But I think there, there it's surely true that there are more and more diverse black characters now than there were in the nineties. I, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not here. I'm sure there are a hundred commentators and listeners who are about to tear me apart. But it, that does not certainly jibe with anything with my experience. Also, the Cosby Show is not the nineties. Cosby Show is the eighties. Well, I didn't. Did I bring? Oh, well, the Lisa Bonet spinoff came out of that. Issa Rae was talking about that. I don't know. Maybe this is wrong, but it was interesting to me. The two very talented African-American creators of this kind of content both had this same sort of nostalgia for the same period. Maybe you're right. It's just when they grew up. But then I couldn't think of like a whole flowering other than them of this same kind of characterization going on now. So anyway, write in. Tell us what you think. Let's pretend it's the Culture Gap Fest for a moment, except that, of course, I have no idea what I'm talking about. All right. Dickerson. You've 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 uh, you been playing be Candy Crush. Better than that. You've been playing Candy Crush for twelve hours. Away from mine. You know now what I, you, I, you know what I find about um, uh, video games, which you know are such a fundamental part of my kids' lives, is that um, even games like Company of Heroes, which is like a little, it's a role playing game as opposed to like Call of Duty. I physically can't handle them anymore. They're just like too much of an assault on my aged senses. And this is, you know, I used to play and write video games as a kid. And so I feel like I'm, this is a real problem. You can't handle that. I can't 3D, handle that. Those I can't, graphics. I feel They're like too it's much just, you. you might as well give me a walker and a drool cup. Um, so my chatter is about um, the latest book by um, S.C. Gwynn, Sam Gwynn, who wrote Empire of the Summer Moon. Um, his latest book is The Rebel Yell, The Violence, Passion, and Redemption of Stonewall Jackson. And oh, my God. Here we go. Town American history well, lane. Stonewall Jackson. Would that be the Civil Yes, the Civil War. The Civil War. Uh, and Sam is, uh, I mean, he's a, great, he's a great writer. He's also my first editor, so I have a special place in my heart for him. But anyway, the, the part from Rebel Yell that I didn't know was about the largest, maybe the largest snow, snowball fight ever. 
I think it was the Army Army of Virginia. Basically, during the winters, they spent a lot of time sitting around waiting for the battle conditions to get better. And most of the winter, they just basically, you know, talked and got bored. And they came up with, like, different variety shows and stuff. But at one point, they decided to have, like, a massive snowball fight in which they basically arranged the snowball fight like it was a battle maneuver. And this was only on the Union side. And there are different numbers. Sam says it was 2,500 uh, troops. There's another account has it 9,000 soldiers engaged in this um, fight. At one point, Robert E. Lee came out to observe the battle and got pelted with snowballs. And what then it, I went on to find out about is that um, around this same period, I guess, it's just to think of like anything whimsical happening in the entire Civil War period, a war that was full of such horrible carnage, 600,000 dead and limbs just basically scattered all over the countryside. There was also this other moment I didn't had never heard about, which was Union soldiers on the um, bank of the Rappahannock doing one of these time-passing exercises started playing songs. And they played a whole host of, you know, the Battle Cry, Cry of Freedom and John John Brown's Body. And, and as they were playing it on one side of the Rappahannock, Confederate soldiers started listening on the other side of the river. And when the Union soldiers were done playing... The Confederate soldiers yelled over, now play one of ours. And so then the Yankee band started playing Dixie, Bonnie Blue Flag, Maryland by Maryland. And they ended the concert or the sort of impromptu concert by playing Home Sweet Home with 150,000 men on both sides singing in. Oh, my joining in the God, song. that's amazing. Wow. And then they went back to killing each other. Which is too bad. We should yeah. have wow. stuck with the singing and the snowballs. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. My chatter is also historical. Sorry. It's sort of historical. It's that I discovered I'm, – I'm the last the last living American to discover this radio show podcast, The Thomas Jefferson Hour. John, you surely know this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a historian, Clay Jenkinson, out of Bismarck, North Dakota, has been doing this show for many, many years where he he plays Thomas Jefferson and he's interviewed about events of his life. And I've just listened to a couple – and it's marvelous. I'm sure maybe maybe it wouldn't be marvelous listening week after week, but just to dip into it was incredible. And the one I listened to was it was called Three Stories. It was recommended by uh, Clara Jeffrey, our Mother Jones's editor. She recommended this particular one, and it has this wonderful story of of um, Jefferson and the Moose. Do you guys know the story? That no. that the Comte de Buffon was a the great naturalist, the French naturalist of his time, and he had a theory of the degeneracy of the new world. His view was that in the old world in Europe, animals grew great and tall and mighty because the, they, they had such, it was, a, it was a healthful place to be. But in the new world, you know, Indians were impotent and infertile and the animals were small and getting smaller with every year. Du Buffon had never been to the new world, but this was his theory. It was widely popular. Jefferson as the ambassador plenipotentiary to France was at a dinner party with Buffon who was holding forth about this and Jefferson said something to the effect that I I would hazard, sir, that one of your reindeer could walk underneath one of our moose. And and Buffon laughed him off. And Jefferson goes home that night and writes to Madison and says, get me a moose. <laughs> and so Madison gets this letter three months later, then contacts the governor of New Hampshire, an old friend from Revolutionary War days, and tells the governor of New Hampshire, get us a moose. Governor of New Hampshire leads an expedition out to the wilderness of New Hampshire, finds a 2,000-pound bull moose, 
kills it. They have to. They realize they've got to get the two thousand pound moose back. They they strip it. They clean it up. They ship it in a huge box over to Jefferson. This is a year and a half later. Suddenly, a box arrives, and Jefferson is like, "Why is there a huge box here?" And it's his <laughs> moose. Jefferson takes it to a taxidermist in Paris, stuffs it, and delivers it to the door of the Comte de Buffon with like a, yeah, take a look at that, buddy. <laughs> I love that story. It's just a That's great story. That's great. How do I not know that story? You guys are in like history hijinks land. It's totally. Okay. We're totally history hijinks. All right. Uh, our producer this week and all weeks, Mike Volo. Intern is Max Tawney. Our managing editor of Slate Podcast, new managing editor, is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is, of course, the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Our show page is slate.com slash Gabfest. Has links to what we talked about today. Facebook page, facebook.com slash Gabfest. Twitter feed at SlateGabFest. Send us conundrums. Email address is gabfest at slate.com if you w- want to get those special tickets to that, that day after private GabFest. If you want to be considered for that, uh, email us there. You can subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes, leave a comment and a rating. That really helps us. You find it by searching for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson in New York, I'm David Plotz in Washington. We will talk to you next week. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.